Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm excited to share our first Married Writers episode. I'm talking with Julie Bunton and Gabe Habash, two writers who met in the MFA program at NYU, married, and have now just released their fantastic debut novels, Julie with Marlena and Gabe with Stephen Florida. Marlena tells the story of Kat and Marlena, two teenage girls in rural northern Michigan. Kat and Marlena form a friendship that, as young female friendships so often are, is intensely close and slightly dangerous. It's also ultimately tragic. As a now-adult Kat tells us in the opening pages, they had been friends for less than a year when the pill-popping Marlena drowned alone in the woods. The book traces the arc of Kat and Marlena's relationship, and how it shaped the person Kat has become, with emotional precision and so much casual wisdom about female life that between the style and the substance, I dog-eared half the pages. In Gabe's Stephen Florida, the eponymous protagonist is an orphaned college wrestler with a solitary obsession, winning the NCAA Divisional Championship in a senior season. The journey toward this goal is surreal and strange, a tour of Stephen's psyche that you will definitely not be prepared for, and I can attest, even if you are not interested in wrestling, be pretty engrossed in. Gabe paints as sharp a picture of the lives of young men as Julie does of those of young women. In this episode, we talk about what drew them both to tell these stories of such intense coming-of-age moments, the moments in which we struggle to define ourselves, often in the reflections of other people. We also talk about what it's like to live with another writer, which, contrary to my belief, turns out not to be impossible. In terms of like the jealousy and the annoyance and the other negative aspects, I think they're all heavily outweighed by how much you believe in the person you're with and how much you admire the work they're doing. It's fun in some ways to have a partner who's going to do the same thing because it's scary to have a book in the world. And for me, even like a good review is fraught with like neuroses and offense that I don't deserve it. And maybe they're lying or whatever. But when Gabe gets something, I can just be happy for him. I loved that both of these books tell stories about these kind of really short, explosive coming-of-age periods, these moments in our youth when it feels like so much is at stake. Uh, I loved this line in Marlena at 15, the world ended over and over and over again. And I thought it might be good to start uh, by asking you both kind of why you were drawn to tell stories of those moments. Oh, that's a good question. Gabe, you go first. Um, I guess uh, I... um, one of my favorite writers is Barry Hanna, and he has this quote about um, why he likes the first person uh, in a lot of his work. And it's because he thinks the third person leads to a lot of the feeling of unearned wisdom. And with first person, you just have to rely on the single character's um, perspective. And that's the limit of the, that's like a helpful, that was a helpful uh, limitation to think about when I had the book. And so in terms of the coming of age and having a character that's um, you know, in his early twenties, that was a story that I felt I had earned the right to tell. Um, and I had been through that experience, not that the book is heavily autobiographical or anything, but, you know, I've been through college and, um, felt comfortable telling it. And, um, yeah, the other thing that was really interesting to me about that time, and I'm sure this is true for, or I don't want to speak for Julie, but I think this is probably true for book as well is it's just a period where you feel more alive and uh the experiences that you have are sort of heightened in a way that um having now been about I'm 30 years old so about 10 years past that now it's just a really um significant point in a lot of people's lives and it is for both of our uh main characters yeah i i think actually i felt i did feel like that to a certain degree like there are a lot of firsts in Marlena there are a lot of like first first sexual experiences first time using drugs or alcohol first intense friendship and I I think I was really attracted to that idea of like how experiences feel when they are the first ones um and I mean that quote that you pulled out for me is is how I I did feel as a teenager and I I wondered like if I could find a way to track or like trace the contours of all of that big feeling. And then in having a retrospective perspective um, in the book, where it goes and how people change and how you make sense of like how different you can be uh, during that kind of those sort of like formative years. Um, so I, th- I think that's what attracted me to it too. And it's more fun to write about, I mean, it's a challenge to write about dramatic like teenage 
outsized feelings, but it's also really fun. Um, and the drama is sort of like baked into everything that they see and feel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so so diving into Marlena, um, which of course tells the story uh, that's that is based in some real life experience of yours. So, can you maybe talk about that and the, the decision to even write about that experience in the first place? I always feel like this this question is is hard to answer in some ways because I even the word like base I find I sort of like resist it a little bit because. But then at the same time, like not acknowledging the the connection to real life experience would be coy and like not authentic. I I did lose a friend um, to kind of complications related to substance abuse when I was in my early twenties, and we had been really really close as teenage teenagers and also kind of up to the same stuff. I was not a I was not a good kid, teenager. I guess is how I would put it. I was I was kind of like on the cat and Marlena scale. I was I was not as far along as Marlene and my destructive behavior, but I wasn't, I wasn't a cat for sure. Um, so, so I don't know, like, I think at the same time though, my friend, even in that kind of like outline of what happened in real life, that's not Kat and Marlena's story at all. Kat, you know, and Marlena know each other for a really brief period of time when they're 15, when Kat's 15 and Marlena's 17. Um, and, the, the way that the death ha- happens is entirely different. I mean, Marlena's family is entirely different than my friend's family. And it's just really not based on that, on, the, on her character at all. Though what I would say is, is does feel authentic to me or like true as far as I can quantify what's true in a fictional context is the feelings that are kind of motivating the story um, and the feelings that I was trying to capture. That sense of kind of the thrill of doing something self-destructive for the first time and where the line is when those experiences start to get out of control. Um, I did have some kind of connection to that sense as a teenager, and I, I wanted to write about it. And I also, you know, was curious about writing about. I, I didn't. I have a very like normal, stable life now as an adult, and I do sometimes look back on that time and I'm like, what in the world? Like, how could I have even been that teenager? Like, it doesn't even make sense with the person that I grew up to be. So I, I do think in in that way, I was trying to work something out about coming of age in my own life. But I do like to stress that really like the story and the shape that it took, there's a reason it's a novel. It, it, it would be almost unfair to suggest that it was in any way, like the true story of my friend. So how did that play out for you while you were writing? You know, was that something that was kind of hanging over your head? Cause even just having kind of the memory of a real person, I feel like could, could add some maybe like dark cloud for the process. It's funny, like, I really did, this sounds sort of cagey, but, like, I really, I, and, and in some ways I think I was naive about this, I, I really, once the characters, like, I have you, let me start over, like, before you write a novel, or at least in my experience of writing this novel, or kind of while I was thinking about it or taking notes, I had, like, these big feelings, or these, these, this kind of, like, cloudy, amorphous motivation to write a novel that was in the form of an emotional thing that I wanted to convey that I didn't even, I couldn't even articulate, but it was that feeling that, like, made, motivated me to sit down and, like, write the thing. But then, and certainly those feelings had some basis in my actual experience. But then, once you start to write the story and then the characters take take on their own, they become, the story kind of takes over for you. I mean, I, I hate it when writers say that because you're always in control of what you write and the story doesn't, I think, the story doesn't control you like you are the one who makes all the choices. It's under your control. But it has its own demands as a, as an, as a novel, like as a piece of writing. Um, and when that takes over, it becomes hard to even think about the connection to real life. Like, I sort of just disappeared into the world of the novel. Like, Cat isn't, there's so many things about Cat that really surface level seem very similar to me. But, like, I never think of her. When people are like, oh, like, in Cat's you, and I'm like, what? I don't know. I mean, I pr- it probably should have been more of a consideration, but it really wasn't because the characters did feel so different from, you know, the the people that I had known. That said, I, I have had, like, my brother's, like, this brother's just like me, even though, like, my brother is younger than me and, like, has a totally different life than Jimmy. And I, don't, I don't get it at all. I'm like, what are you talking about? But, you know, I think people do, when they know a writer, do kind of, like, see if you can track the... You can kind of track the real stuff in a way, or think you can. 
Another thing that I really loved about Marlena is that you write about, you know, at least it, my my experience as a reader was about this type of freedom anchored in this adolescent rebellion. But there there was kind of always this tension between freedom and kind of just being invisible. Like there's there is a little bit of abandonment on, you know, to, to varying degrees in, in each of their family experiences. And um, was that something that you thought was kind of a less explored aspect of the coming of age story or what, where did that come from for you? Yeah, that's interesting too. I mean, I, I'm not sure I thought about it necessarily in terms of it being less explored, but I, I did think I was curious in like how something like you know, something readers say to me sometimes is they're like, oh, these they're, the families are so bad or like, but I don't actually think of Kat's family situation as being like really that bad. I think of it as being in the moment of transition or change or upheaval. But like the fact that she has a loving parent who's like there essentially when, when she needs to be is, is I think like the difference between kind of, or one of the big differences or between what happens to her and what happens to Marlena. But I was, I was interested in like, what are the kind of circumstances that might create a more volatile uh, situation or like a, an atmosphere in which it would be easier for you to sort of flip off the rails. And I think there is something, you know, how much freedom is okay for a teenager to have? How much is not okay? That is definitely something I was curious about or interested in exploring. Can you talk about the decision too to focus on more rural, more lower class characters? I grew up in, on uh, Northern Michigan, sort of in the Pataki area, that's sort of the place that I was thinking of in a lot of ways. And, you know, what I, what struck me growing up and strikes me about that area still, and it's a place that I really love. And, you know, I, I think it's beautiful and it's in a lot of ways, Pataki is like the most picturesque, like lovely small town, you know, that you can kind of think of. But at the same time, there's a lot of economic uh, tension built into the fact of the place because it's, it's a resort town, basically. It's on Lake Michigan. And there's like a number of very, very exclusive sort of summer communities that are empty in the winter, basic for like 10 months of the year, not that that's an exaggeration, but like eight months of the year. And then they fill up in the summer and they're mansions and they're, they're totally different than like the lifestyles of the people who support those houses via the tourism industry in whatever form. Um, things like housekeeping, like cat mom or whatever, window washing in the summer, whatever it is. Um, I, I, thought, I found that really interesting about that place, that it had kind of these two worlds in one and where they intersected and where they didn't. And I do think that I was looking around in contemporary fiction and not always finding enough stories or satisfying stories about people who, for whom money was like a number one primary anxiety and concern. And I felt that that was not true to my experience or like, what it's like to be alive in in the world. It's a really striking, uh, you know, like you're saying, those two worlds coming together. It's a much more dramatic contrast than maybe would exist in like a kind of quote unquote normal adolescence where you're like, oh, there might be like the rich kid at school who like wears nicer clothes or something. It's like here you're like really being confronted with being in like a kind of caste system. Yeah, totally. Like I, I really that, that they were like in. I went to high school in Kentucky. And, like, they were, like, the re- the regular rich kids, so to speak, that anyone would have in, like, their high school. Like, the doctor's kids or the lawyer's, the lawyer's kids or the judge's kids. And then there were, like, any small town, you know, with a hospital and all those things. And then there were also, like, like Madonna has a house on, in Bay Harbor. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just, like, another level. And then there were people who, like, whose parents were basically, like, unemployed and, like, I don't even know what they did and lived in, like, trailers and A-frames. Like, there was just, it was just so extremely different. I want to talk to you a little bit about female friendship and especially female friendship as at this age as a subject. And I was really struck by this line that you have um, for so many women, the process of becoming requires two. It really struck me, I think, because like I was always more like Kat, you know, like where you're kind of just like the cipher sort of like looking for a way to be. What was so attractive to you in that relationship? You know, we've had, we've been really fortunate as readers in the last few years to have like this boom of great novels about female friendship, but that wasn't always true. It wasn't necessarily true in my adolescence. I didn't have a lot of um, examples of like stories about friendships that spoke to the depth and intensity of the relationships that I had and that I know many girls have had and 
I mean, I can think of one who were on the frog hospital, but there weren't a t- it wasn't like now. Um, and I mean, I think I wanted to, I still feel like that's a, a territory that's kind of like endlessly interesting and unexplored because those relationships say so much about identity in the sense that as a teenage girl, you're kind of like looking for all of these different clues to figure out who you, who you want to become. And I think also girls are sort of, those relationships can be toxic and jealous and there can be negative aspects to them too, but they can also be sort of creative and collaborative in the sense that like with your friend, you decide who gets to be what or how one person gets to be. And sometimes those roles are limiting and sometimes they're not. Who gets to be the bad girl? Who gets to be the good girl? Can there be one of each? Should there be, you know, can there be two good girls? Like I'm, I was really curious in kind of all of those stereotypes and roles and how our friendships as girls amplify them and also dismantle them at the same time, how we can kind of never be, just one thing but in a best friendship sometimes people feel like they have to take on like different opposing qualities in order to make this like complete girl so those were some that was something I was thinking about and then also just like I I just think it's it's like your first intimate truly like intense passionate relationship as a as a person when you're 15 even 13 12 um outside of your family it's I, I found those relationships to be more intense and more memorable than my relationships with boys at that time or, you know, what, and, and not, I, that sounded very, like, heteronormative, but any kind of, like, sexual relationship, I think, it, it seemed to me like it, 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 friendships can be more, kind of, can be bigger or something. Um, so, I, I wanted to write about that, and, and also, kind of, how you figure out where to put those things once you've grown up. Like, most people don't stay in touch with their best friend from 13. Some people do, but not everybody. So, where do you, how do you, talk about that relationship once you've grown past it what does it really mean um, when you're thinking about who you are so I wanted to I wanted to write into that question I guess yeah that brings up something that I was really curious to hear you talk about which is Kat's um, alcoholism as an adult as a character trait and I kind of wondered if if that was a way of sort of not being able to quite let go of that period or kind of how you how you saw that functioning in the story yeah, that that kind of came a little bit late in the drafting process. I had originally written the book without a ton of uh, narrative present, and then I, I sort of expanded it while I was revising. And the more I got to know about Kat, the more I started thinking about what is her connection to this time? Like, it's not just this friendship that ended tragically. It's a combination of sort of like a trauma of having experienced that loss in such a uh, hor- horrible way, but also... You know, and also just the fact that they were truly, like, I think of their friendship as, like, a truly very, like, pure and loving thing. And the loss of that and the fact of having had it. But just, like, I don't think of it necessarily as just, like, a kind of, like, a traumatic, like, I'm still, another thing I've heard from readers sometimes is, like, they're, like, she's still drinking, like, just stop drinking. Like, she's so hung up on it. Like, get over it. You were just 15. I actually don't think of cat drinking as, like, an emotional band-aid for the loss of Marlena I think of it as a uh, I mean I was also very interested in writing about addiction and substance abuse and when you start drinking heavily when you're 15 years old your relationship to alcohol you have a different relationship to alcohol than somebody who starts when they're 21 in college Um, and I wanted to kind of track like how how would Kat kind of what is her other what is the other thing that started in this time that can't she can't let go of like, what is, what is the other thing that's keeping her stuck here? And I realized that it was that kind of through doing work on her character and thinking about why she couldn't move forward and why she was so um, kind of at this precipice in her life. And so I was thinking about what it, what it means on a kind of like a brain chemistry level to be drinking the way that she had and starting then. And there's also that theory I find so interesting about alcoholics and other drug users that your, your uh, development stops at the moment that you first start using. Um, how true is that and what does it mean? Just shifting gears a bit to the actual writing process, um, can you talk a bit about how, sort of how it became a project that you were working on, you know, from just kind of this like memory that you had and maybe wanted to to explore in a fiction space to, to sort of the first thing you put down on paper? Yeah, I worked for like a long time on this book in a lot of different sort of forms. I started with these girls, a story with these girls and different kind of you know, this kind of gets back to also why I, I always chafe a little bit at the suggestion of autobiography, even though I have written nonfiction about losing a friend, um, because I've been working on a story with, with these girls in it since 2011. So for me, they were always 
they're always, they've always been characters, you know, in such a real way. But that, my kind of early attempts with their stories, I mean, it looks a lot different than what it looks like now. And I, I kind of put it, put the novel aside. I was in grad school when I started it and wrote another almost 150 or so pages of another novel that I wound up throwing away. So there was a whole period of time, probably like a year and a half, where I barely worked on Marlene at all. Um, then I came back to it in my thesis semester. And from there, I started working on it more earnestly. Um, but I, I've always had a job, usually kind of in, kind of intense jobs for the last, you know, seven years. So as I wrote, I was always kind of working hard at work or, you know, trying to find the time. And I wasn't like working every single day. Um, but then there would be periods of time when I did. And that's kind of how the novel got finished. I would work on these spurts. Um, and after it sold, I did a pretty dramatic revision. Um, kind of encouraged by my editor, who is brilliant and great. Uh, and that really is where the book kind of came alive, I think. I wound up cutting like 40,000 words and fleshing out the narrative presence. So and, and in terms of actual cutting, like probably it was way more than 40,000, but that's the book is 40,000 words shorter than the one I sold. Um, and when I was revising, I really, that was sort of like the most amazing time in terms of the writing process in the sense that I was totally fully invested in it and writing all the time and not thinking about anything else and truly like very disconnected from my life, my actual life, which as a writer, I think is like the place you're always trying to get to. Totally. I, uh, the, the last episode that aired, uh, Wednesday was with Garth Greenwell and he was saying that what he wants now is to be like in the middle of a novel again, because yeah. like the end is stressful. The beginning is stressful. Cause you don't know what's going to happen. But like when you can be like, when you feel in it and you feel like authoritative and you can just like get in there and play with it. That's, yeah, that's the best that's, place to be. I totally agree. That is the, like the truest thing ever. It's really hard to, to get into a novel when you don't have a lot of free time. Like it was, it was in grad school. I had, I still had jobs, but I, they were easier. So I could kind of find my way into the world and explore in a different way. Cause I had like endless hours to do so. Now I'm like, okay, you've got eight hours on, on Saturday to like think about how you want this story to be. And it's, it's really challenging. Can you talk a little bit more about those dramatic changes that you made at the, at the suggestion of your editor? Like kind of how the book changed at that point? It was interesting. Like my editor was Sarah Bowen at Henry Holt, who's since left Holt and is now an agent and shameless plug for Sarah. She's like, she's a genius and I will be sad every day that she left Holt and I don't won't get to work with her again in that, in that you know, as an editor, but she's truly wonderful. Um, she wrote me like a 12 page editorial letter with a lot of questions and, and some suggestions about things I could do to kind of amplify. So it, it was always, the book was always told in a retrospective voice, but where Kat was in time and space, I didn't want to make that story too big because I really wanted to emphasize that it was this, this experience in the past that was like swamping, kind of swamping her at the moment of the telling of the story. and that it was bigger and more vivid. Um, but then, you know, in conversations with Sarah, I realized that in amplifying the narrative present, I might be able to find a way to use that kind of numbness of her life and as an adult to contrast against the, this time. And it might be like sort of more effective. So I really, I really fleshed out that story. Uh, and I still wanted to be very conscious of keeping it like brief and interruptive, but not the kind of thing that would like, I, I knew it wasn't going to be like pages and pages and pages of cat story. That was never kind of like my intention for the book. And then just in general, just like a lot of cutting. Um, <laughs> really, revision for me is so much about cutting. Uh, the last question that I, I wanted to ask, and, and I don't want this to sound loaded, but I am curious um, if at any point you came up against kind of pressure to make it a like quote unquote woman's book. Like if you had to deal with fights about like the cover or the marketing of it or anything like that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I. So a little bit, not a, way less than I anticipated and was worried about. And I thank my publisher for that. Um, they've been really great in about like kind of helping this book find the right audience, I think. But I did see a few covers that like were horrifying. Um, one was like two girls, two like perfect looking girls, pink script that said Marlena. Their faces were like zoomed in and then there were pills over one of their eyes. Oh and I was like, not only is this so like lowbrow, horrible. My agent called it a my agent called it a, sh- a shitty guess ad. I think um, <laughs> it was just like offensive to me. Actually, like mm-hmm. the treatment of substance abuse is like it, it glamorized. Sure, I don't know. It was bad. Um, so I I said no really intensely, and they they totally respected that. 
and I like the cover now. Um, but you know, I do know that it's like, it's girly. Like it's definitely like a girly, girly cover. And I don't mind. Like I, I, I wrote a book about women's experiences and I, it, it's, I hope men read it and like it, but it's really like for women in a lot of ways, I think. So I guess if anything, I chafe against the idea that women's literature has to have this like connotation of being like less literary or less important. Uh, that I, I resist. And I was hoping that it would get like serious review attention. And so far, like I've been very lucky to, I feel like have gotten, have gotten that. And I know not everyone who writes a book about girls gets that. Uh, so I, I really am grateful for for it. And I don't think it's something that I have had to deal with the way that other writers have. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Right. I do think that they push the mystery thriller thing maybe a little bit too hard since this book is like really not a thriller. It's not a mystery. Like readers of suspense, traditional novel of suspense are not going to be satisfied by Marlena. It's not, you know, you don't get like a big twist at the end. So that I'm almost more sensitive about that because you hear like dead girl in the first pages and you think you're, you think you might be getting one kind of book, but you're really not getting that kind of book. Um, so that was is maybe the only thing I would change, like a slight alteration to like the copy or something. Right, right. Yeah, that's why that's why I wanted to preface that I I mm-hmm. know it would sound like a loaded question is like because obviously there is value in exploring women <laughs> women characters, but yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know you no, fall into that like it, oh beach read kind of like easy breezy mm-hmm. thing. It's a good question. I mean, I think it Colt was great. Like, I there was a conversation at one point where they were like, "We're not going to put this." this isn't going to be, this isn't a summer book. And I was like, oh my God, it's not a summer book. You get it. Not that there's anything wrong with summer books, but like, it's not, it's just not, it wouldn't be good for the book. Like those readers were looking for something like light and entertaining and page turnery. It's not exactly that. So it's almost just like, it's good. I think when publishers market their books as the books essentially are, not as something other than that, just to sell copies. So, Gabe, to move the conversation to Stephen Florida, this book has such a remarkable voice, and it and it seemed to me when I was reading that that probably a lot of finding the story was finding the voice, and I wanted to ask you if that was your experience or sort of what what came first there. Yeah, the um, that's a that's a good question. The, the in the process, the voice I knew would be the uh, main engine, so I figured that out very early on. And when I was doing the first draft, I had it ready to go uh, when I sat down to do the first page. Um, and some of the other elements, uh, I was still researching as I was writing the first draft, but the voice was always there. And during the editorial process, it was after the book had sold and even before that with my agent, the main process was uh, just sort of trimming it down. Um, so yeah, the voice, <clears throat> the voice was always largely the same and in later iterations of the draft the voice got like a little less weird even though it's still pretty weird in the final draft but um yeah that was that was the component that um i had worked on and uh had ready to go because i knew it was such a vital part of the like i always knew it was going to be first person and i always knew his voice was going to be something that uh took the plot in um surprising directions since the structure itself is very straightforward, it's just a single wrestling season. Do you remember what uh, your first sort of glimpse into that voice was? Like, did you like hear a sentence in your head? Um, yeah, the the open so the opening page has um, it's not the actual opening. The opening now is about his mother having two placentas, which was not there in the beginning. Um, the the original opening was his line, which is like the third or fourth paragraph on the first page about um, internal age. And uh, that was that was the first thing I thought of. The first page, if you read it, is just sort of this mantra that he uses to establish his voice. And he says, um, I believe in wrestling, I believe in the United States, and I'm a motherfucking astronaut. And that was uh, really early. That was maybe one of the first things. I, I'm glad that you quoted that because I have that here in my notes as well, that line, I'm a motherfucking astronaut. And I loved it so much. And I was just like, I felt like that was like a real flow moment. Yeah. I think, yeah, that first page, the first page is sort of, it's not, it's not, like, it's not exactly like a preface because it isn't exactly removed from the rest of the story, but it is uh, just sort of like a hype. It's like a page like where he hypes himself up and uh, obviously the his energy level dips and raises up again 
as the book goes. And but yeah, that was that was a way of like establishing the momentum right from the first page. I hope. Can you talk a bit about what it was about wrestling that compelled you? Um, you know, were you a wrestler in college as well? And you know, how? Why? Why did it seem to you to be a good narrative element? Right. Yeah. I I had never wrestled. Uh, I still have never wrestled. I I have not started wrestling since writing the book. Although I do love it. Um, I the only sport I really got good at was in high school, and that was cross country. Um, so I did have some element of. Uh, like physical exertion and coming from that place, I would sort of draw on uh, for the book. But wrestling specifically was always interesting to me uh, even years ago because of how uh, separate and sort of adjacent it exists, how it, how adjacent it is from uh, more mainstream sports and sports that are more popular, like, uh, you know, football and basketball. And um, even compared to, you know, other fringe, quote unquote, fringe sports like cross country that don't exist in like the common consciousness on a professional professional level. You know, cross country, I can tell you firsthand, cross country runners do not punish themselves the way that wrestlers do. And so wrestling is just an inherently dramatic sport because of the weight cutting and, you know, it, it basically permanently deforms your ears. So I was drawn to what sort of person would commit to something um, that is so demanding and unforgiving. And a lot of the other elements, like the setting, I incorporated into the book, uh, the book set in North Dakota, because of how isolated and uh, separate it is. And I used that as a way to heighten his sort of uh, solitude and the singularity of his purpose. Um, so yeah, the the wrestling I think was 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 both how inherently dramatic wrestling is, and how it sort of led itself to a naturally obsessive and single minded um, consciousness to tell the book in a first person way. I was struck by like the combination of just like it's so primal on a physical level, but actually also still so cerebral. And I don't mean that like oh, I thought it was a bunch of dumb idiots, but like, I was just struck by like, what essentially like, it's like a moving chess match. And that was really, that was yeah. a really interesting way, I think, to explore the sport to kind of underscoring the, not just the, the physical preparations and the, and the kind of physical discipline that you need, but like the actual, like, intellectual um, fortitude. Yeah, and it's, it, that's a really good point that wrestling is sort of about as intense as you can get as a sport, because it's, I mean, it is a team sport. You have team scores in tournaments, but it's a it's a solo sport. And um, if you, especially if you're watching like the, the NCAA tournaments in March, when they are basically in do or die situations, you know, it's a couple minutes per match. And if you, you know, take the wrong angle on a shot, or you know, if you make like one mistake with how you're holding someone, it's just the end of your season. And that sort of, you know. Uh, one single mistake can end your entire season was just, you know, that's, that was something that sort of wrote itself in terms of fiction and, you know, having drama in, in your novel. Yeah. I love this line of yours. Um, wrestling is at its core, one passion set against another passion for the purpose of determining which is stronger. It's like some kind of like physics principle or something. It's just like something will break. Right. Right. Can you talk about uh, how you approached writing the actual wrestling scenes, which I have to say that as someone who does not have an inherent interest in wrestling, like I thought it was really well, there, it was a really great touch, like how often and into how much depth you, you went into the actual movements and the, the matches themselves. But you essentially have to know how to like, you yourself then had to learn how to like win a championship. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I, there's there's two parts of that that I would that I think are relevant. And the first was the actual research. And I, I mean, I read some books. I read A Season on the Mat, which is a biography of Dan Gable, who is was an Iowa wrestling coach and is probably the like, closest thing to a uh, household name. And I read um, like the Foxcatcher memoir by Mark Schultz, which uh, diverges from the movie a little bit. And uh, just read some other wrestling books, but a lot of the research was was watching YouTube videos and on an infinite infinite uh, scroll, just match after match and seeing stuff. And 
Um, if I saw something that I wanted to incorporate into the book, I would watch it and um, watch tutorials of holds and um, pins and cradles and tilts and all those other things. And if it looked like something that I wanted Steven to do, I would try, I would then go about trying to, or Steven's opponent for that matter, if that was something that I visually found appealing, I would try to translate that uh, onto the page. And uh, I actually thought that my lack of wrestling expertise and background uh, helped me because I was able, I figured if I could put that on the page and articulate that in a way that readers could understand, then, uh, or I felt like if I could understand it on the page, then readers could understand it. Um, and so a lot of it was uh, in the wrestling sequences, um, putting in like personal details, like Stephen will grab some, grab his opponent and like think about the way his hair smells. And so I, I, I was very conscious that if I just had um, like a, bullet point by bullet point description of how a match went and it was limited to the technical names and uh, how the match like progresses on a, on a sort of quote unquote play by play level. It would just be like reading like a film script without any dialogue. And it would just be like direction, 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 and you'd lose the reader. So um, yeah, I, I worked to try to like make them as, I guess to make them as personal to Steven's uh, perspective as possible and then the other part of the answer that I think is relevant is the quant the quantity of matches I always knew I wanted to keep to a minimum for exactly the reason I said. It's like if I were just writing a wrestling book, if this was just a wrestling book, no one would read it. I mean, I would maybe some wrestlers would read it, but uh, it needed to be a book that uh, a lot of people who had never wrestled or had never even really thought about wrestling would uh, be able to start and get invested in. So I knew right away when I was first starting that it had to have basically the, the, the minimum number of matches. Um, so if you read the book, that's about as like short as the season can get as in terms of um, logistics of how an actual NCAA season plays out. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that was a really, a really cool decision because the season, like you said that you, like you already said, the season itself is such a nice, uh, tight like dramatic device the length of a season so you want to keep that but not get too you know in the muck with it yeah can you uh talk about you know steven is so fascinating and he's so compelling but he's not i i hesitate to even say this likable <laughs> all the time um and i wonder if that was something that you're that you thought about like you know oh is he being too weird is he being too aggressive or is he being too like is he going to turn off the reader yeah that's a really good question uh, and it was definitely something I was thinking about. I, I, I don't think I thought of it. I mean, likable and unlikable is like the most, uh, like boiled down version of saying it. So yeah, it was there, but, um, yeah, I, I was constantly thinking about like where he was on the spectrum of, uh, whether he is someone that he was a hero or an anti-hero or someone you, however you want to put it, someone you would root for versus someone you maybe would like to see get his comeuppance. Specifically, there were there was one thing that he does towards the end of the book that I that involves a toothbrush and a toilet, um, and I I t I had it in there originally, and then I took it out, and because I was like maybe that's too bad, and then I put it back in. So that's in the actual book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that that was the I think that was the one time where I was like maybe he's too this is too much. Um, but I just think it, I, again, I ultimately left it in because I just think it makes a much more, he's just a much more interesting character to me. If he has all of these flaws and, you know, he can, um, you know, maybe do something that endears himself to the reader on one page and then repulses them on the, on the subsequent page. And, um, it's also, I think, just a fundamental part of who he is because he experienced a lot of loss. His parents died when he was younger. He doesn't really have many meaningful relationships. Some of them are due to the fact that he entirely devotes himself to wrestling. It's just sort of this chicken or the egg and big tangled ball of yarn, and you don't know where the beginning of the thread is, where you don't know when he's, like, what's causing what and when, you know, like, when things in his life started to develop from a personality standpoint. 
I find now that I've read it a, a moment that I keep that I keep just kind of popping up in my mind where he just has this really brief moment of thinking like, oh, and what if they had taken me to the movies with them? And I was just like, oh, holy shit. Okay, so he's been thinking about this like the entire time. I don't know. It's just, it was so small and it was so delicately placed, but it has such a big impact. And I think that that was one of the things that made me uh, soften more to him when I when I maybe sometimes didn't want to. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's that's a really good point. I didn't want to like make it like a quantity thing like, oh, well, okay, so his, his parents are both dead and his grandma's dead, then maybe you know, that's like a quantity where you'll be able to, you know, be on his side, but it certainly is a part of it. Like I, I didn't write his parents. I didn't kill his parents. I mean, I didn't kill his parents, but I didn't kill off his parents because, uh, of any, the, the sympathy that you would get for him in that instance was secondary to the fact that I just didn't want to write, uh, his parents. I just didn't, the book, the book is limited to him and it's first person for a reason. And, I wanted to make the book as tight and claustrophobic as possible. And I didn't want the distraction of having him have to talk to his parents in scenes or, um, you know, going to visit them or them coming to visit him. I just didn't, that was like a, one of the limiting factors that I wanted to keep the book to its, uh, you know, core essence, I guess. And um, yeah, that, that, but that's, that's, I'm glad you like that because that that's like sort of towards the end of the book where he's thinking a lot of, he goes through, he's been going through some uh, difficult parts in the season. And so the, the narrative sort of shifts to these little fragments for a good portion of it. And um, yeah, I felt that that fragmented structure allowed for a lot of um, triangulations and stuff that he maybe was less likely to think about in the context of the straightforward uh, narrative scene. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good point to bring up the way that the kind of structure changes. Um, and I, and again, like you said, I don't know how much you want to talk about that at the risk of giving anything away. Um, but that is a really cool choice. No, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. So, uh, I guess some of the reviews give it away, but I won't, um, something happens about a third of the way book through the book that sort of alters the, um, the trajectory of the plot and Steven sort of whatever sort of um, mental hold he has uh, and the stability he has in the early part of the season sort of takes a big hit and his uh, consciousness starts to fragment a little bit. And um, yeah, so the sort of middle third towards the end of the book is him uh, sort of coming to terms with a lot of different things because he, uh, is in a compromised position, and the I, I've I've talked about this a, lo- a little bit before in other interviews, but I do think it's worth repeating that one of the I don't think of books in terms of uh, being like outright influences on Stephen Florida, but one book that certainly was was this novel that came out in 2013 called Sea of Books by Lindsay Hill, which is um, one of the best books I've ever read, and uh, that is similarly from a, a perfect. A, perspective of someone who's experienced a lot of trauma and it's done in these titled fragments that are almost like these little prose poems. The author Lindsay Hill is uh, uh, formerly a soul poet, but he, this is his first novel. And um, the way that these fragments sort of fit together in this puzzle, puzzle piece way uh, was definitely something that I uh, worked to try to incorporate into the novel. I loved how weird the book is, um, and I and I was really, <laughs> I was really struck, and I mean that like completely as a compliment. But I was amazed at sort of just like how it was able to incorporate this kind of surrealist imagery and sensory experience language. So without it, it, it just felt it somehow all felt very organic. Was that aspect of the narrative a discovery for you, or was that part of Stephen's character that you're just kind of reflecting back into the world around him? Like, how did that come about for you? Stephen is by nature a very physical person. Just uh, so a lot of the weird details, like there's a part where he pees on someone, and there's a part where he like puts his mouth on a piece of a building. He pees on someone who's unsuspecting, like walking by underneath the balcony. I'll, I'll contextualize a little bit. Uh, those were all things that felt very normal to him. Like that was all stuff that came from, uh, how I viewed him as a person whose day-to-day existence 
he puts all of his importance on wrestling. So his, it's putting his hands on other people. It's being physical with other people. Um, and then in terms of the general weirdness, the more general weirdness, uh, I think on a, like a, on a writing level, when I was doing the first draft, um, like I said before, it's a very straightforward structure. It's a single season. And so having that sort of very straightforward timeline allowed me to do a lot of, give me a lot of room to play with uh, Steven's voice and things that he would potentially get himself into. So as I was writing the first draft, my way of keeping myself entertained and to avoid boredom was to find out where Steven's voice would take me. And Steve is a naturally weird person. So the end product is a naturally weird book. Um, but I did think that that weirdness fits well in a nice contrast against um, how straightforward a lot of the, the plot is. You both got your MFAs at NYU. Can you talk about uh, the MFA experience, kind of why you decided to get one in the first place, why you chose NYU? Do you want to go first, Gabe? Uh, I don't, I, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't, I don't know if this is like a glowing endorsement, uh, like a glowing endorsement for an MFA, but I was in undergrad and uh, I had, I actually didn't start writing seriously until undergrad and um, I didn't really know what I was going to do after college. And uh, so I just applied to a bunch of M- MFA programs, and I don't mean that to be like it was a substitute for me not facing the real world, although it kind of was. And uh, yeah, NYU was the only school that took me, so it was a very easy <laughs> decision. Uh, I I was living in New York when I graduated from college, and I was in a very serious relationship at the time, and he was staying in New York, so I applied to a bunch of grad schools in New York, kind of like Gabe was saying, I was, I had been a waitress in college and I basically was like, I guess I'll just still be a waitress or I'll apply to MFA program. Um, and I didn't, I applied to only New York city schools. I only got into Columbia and NYU, Columbia, the funding package at NYU was much better than Columbia's. And I, I think if I had, I kind of thought I wouldn't get in anywhere at all and that I would apply again. And you know, I guess I wouldn't have met Gabe and I wouldn't have the life I have now, so it's all good. But I do, if I, if I could do it over again, I would have applied to, like, more schools. I don't know what I was doing. I did not do it in a structured and strategic way. Julie, you mentioned working on Marlena in one form or another while you were in school. Gabe, was was this where Stephen Florida, the idea for the book, was born as well during the program? No, I didn't, I didn't start. I had another book that I was working on um, that didn't sell. And that was my senior, or not my senior, my uh, grad thesis. Um, and then I started Stephen Florida in 2013, so about two years after. Julie, you graduated in 2012. I graduated in 2013 because I, I right. taught and, that extra class. Yeah, and then my, so I graduated in 2011, Julie was 2013, so I, I didn't start mine until after I'd been out for two years. I wanted to ask you both what your writing practices are like and whether they're compatible and, you know, do you guys like both work at home? a lot or do you kind of need different spaces? I know both of you also, it should be noted, um, have other responsibilities. Gabe, you are an editor at Publishers Weekly and Julie, you teach at Marymount and you run the writing program or the class program at, um, I'm sure there's a, a more uh, formal name no, for that, fine. a that's, catapult. That's a good way to put it. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the right, right. That's a good description of what I give. Um, we, it's funny, right now Gabe is sitting in my chair which is this computer chair. We live in a railroad-style apartment in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, so it's basically like, it's, it's, it's a nice-sized apartment, but it's basically like a, a long studio broken up into kind of like little rooms. They all run together. His desk is in the bedroom, and my work area is at the kitchen table, but I have like a lot of neck problems, like many writers, so it's like this ergonomic setup like at the edge of our kitchen table <laughs> with like a computer chair in the dining room, and there's like this weird sheep robe on it because I get cold sometimes when I write, and then there's like all this other stuff like stacked there, so it's kind of like a crazy situation, but we definitely do work in the same space. Yeah, Julie, I think the main difference between how we work is Julie writes in huge, like, Fugue states like she'll write for like ten hours straight, and I can't do that. I write, I'll write like when I was working on the book, I write very similar stretches of time every single day, or I try to. Um, and whereas Julie will, you know, go 
a couple of days without writing and then she'll just write for, you know, an entire day straight and I'll just like be responsible for putting snacks next to her computer. <laughs> and, um, so that's, that's probably yeah, the main difference. It's true. It's like, I said this before, but it's like, Gabe is like, I, I envy how Gabe works because I think it's so much more healthy. Like, but I'm just like a binge writer. Like I won't do it and then I'll do it. And then once I start, it's really hard for me to stop as long as I'm like connected to what I'm doing. So sometimes there would, we would get in like little, not arguments, but Gabe would be like, okay, so we're going to go, go to the movies at 7.30 on Saturday. And I'd be like, sure, sure, sure. And I've been writing since like 10.30 in the morning. And then 7, it would be like 6.45. And I ha- I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know? Um, so... It's just a different, it's different ways. It's interesting to compare because it's a reminder that like everyone is different. Like I used to beat up on myself for not writing every day and think that it was like the worst thing about me. And I would never be a real writer if I couldn't figure out how to do that. But like people just have different ways of going about going about it. I think. I think that that is such a hard thing to, a hard lesson to actually learn. Like I think we're so, uh, it's it, writers I think are so often just looking for reasons to like tell themselves that they're terrible and they're not real writers. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I'm always ready to be like, it was just a joke. <laughs> I'm not really a writer at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's funny too, that you guys haven't, that you work in such close proximity and you haven't really like rubbed off on one another. It, it, you know, really solidifies your, uh, your ways of working. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've tried to do it Gabe's way, but like, I just, can't I think I mean that Gabe's job has its own pressures and demands I do think Gabe's job isn't like a full it's not like a full brain immersion the way that mine is kind of never-ending so it might be easier to create boundaries I don't know anything that Gabe yeah I mean I my my job naturally lends itself to I, I I don't like waking up in the morning so I write when I get home from work and uh yeah I mean I would come home at a pretty predictable time and uh right until I didn't have any brain power left and sometimes that was like 20 minutes and sometimes it was you know two or three hours uh but yeah it was it was pretty much the same time every day you know six six to eight or so and then Julie how about you are you out of the house most days yeah I mean Catapult's a startup essentially and it's at its core like we're, we're an independent publisher and we do a lot of things but we really are that startup mentality I've never worked for a startup before but but I, I, I have worked in literary publishing before, and this feels different. Um, I love my job. I mean, I feel like I work with, I truly have never been around such smart people, and everyone is so inspiring, and I really believe in what we're doing. But it's, it's, not a, it's not a dip in, dip out kind of job. It doesn't end at 5 or 6. It's constant. And, like, for t- like right even, like, right now, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm, like, a little bit anxious. Because also, I'm, I'm just behind. Like, it's very hard to, like, publish a book at the same time as doing a job that you really care about because something has to give and it's frustrating to like not be able to do everything kind of at the same level of goodness but yeah it makes it hard to have a good writing schedule because sometimes I'll be staying a little bit late for a class or I'll have an event or I need to go somewhere because I want to meet this person who I think would be good to teach and it's just like a little bit my schedule's a little variable in that way I like to actually write in the morning in the morning when I can and when I was really working on Marlene I was getting up before work and writing for a little bit but it's not my ideal way because usually for me, it doesn't really click until like two or three hours in. So it's hard to, you only have two or three hours. You know what I mean? Totally. Do you guys feel like you learned those work habit lessons about yourselves in grad school? I think it's so, um, you know, I, I, a few episodes ago interviewed this poet, Rebecca Gale Howell, and she was saying that like, she had been on fellowships, you know, a couple in a row. And so she had this luxury of like really being able to learn what her process is, uh, like what, like in her ideal state, the way that she would work. And I feel like most of us are just kind of trying to shoehorn it into things. <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious how you, you know, became mindful of, of what works best for you. Yeah, you had time in grad school, so you have a different answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's pretty close to how I feel uh, now is that when I was in grad school, I didn't really have too many other demands. And so I was just writing and reading all the time. And yeah, that's sort of like going back to the, the Garden of Eden, for lack of a better term, where like now you're just, when you have, you know, other demands and commitments that uh, cut into your writing time and your reading time. But I, I do feel like I, I maybe made the most uh, strides into like, thinking about writing and thinking about reading in grad school because I had all the time to do it. 
Um, and I do think the habits that I have now that I'm are, are sort of like making the best of the situation that I have in terms of the time I have. Uh, but I do, I do feel like I, I learned a lot of that in the habits that I had in grad school for sure. Even hearing that, like, makes me a little bit jealous, both Rebecca and Gabe's perspective. I, I didn't, I mean, I had a, a really nice funding package, including a stipend in my second year at NYU, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough to live off of, um, and not in New York City. So I, I had to work. I mean, I worked for the program from the second that I, I started at NYU. I got a job uh, working there. Basically, there were a few jobs. They're nice jobs because they're for grad students and they're flexible, but even that wasn't, <laughs> with the stipend, wasn't enough to live off. And with teaching, it wasn't really enough for me to live off of because I was, you know, I've been supporting myself in New York since I was 17. So I had to do other things, tutor. Um, I still would sometimes take a hosting shift at the restaurant where I worked. So I've never, I truly feel like I've never, ever had a time in my entire life that's been like, and I think a lot of writers have this experience, right? Like, it's a luxury and a privilege to have a full-time, any chunk of time set aside for writing. But I have no idea what, I, what it would be like. Like, I, I'm dying to do, like, a residency or something. But it would be, and I think based on how I work now, it would be probably the best thing for me. Um, but it's hard to take six weeks off of work or four weeks or two weeks even, um, especially when you've already taken it off for your book release. <laughs> but... But, like, I would love to know. I don't think I learned any. I have no idea what my work habits really would be like in an, in an ideal state. I have truly, like, no sense. I think I would probably just write all the time, but maybe maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Do you guys feel like that is the goal, to eventually be able to just write all day, you know, and not, and not have these other commitments? Or do you feel like the other commitments that you have really enrich your your writing experience and, you know, have their own benefits? I mean, I, I'm glad to have other things because I – if I, the way that I write when I, when I had, once I had the, once I was ready to start the first draft of the novel, it was, I was happy to have stuff to work on every single day. But again, I can't, I couldn't work. I mean, on weekends, yeah, I would, I would go for longer than the two or three hours. But when I don't have a project like right now, I don't, if I had nothing to do, I would have nothing to do. So I, I go through, I think I go through these periods where I, I go between projects and um, right, I'm in right now and the idea of like not having a job right now is sort of terrifying. So I, I think that if I was in the middle of something like, like Garth was talking about, then I would, I would need, I would want more time, but uh, I don't have that right now. So I go through, you know, different periods. Whereas, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, I think Julie would prefer to have all the time in the world. Yeah. I'm just, at this point, I'm just, you, I don't know how people do it. Like, even if you get, like, I just don't understand how people, I'm so interested in, like, people and money. Totally, totally, yeah. I know some writers who do, not a ton, but people who work full on writing, I'm, I just don't understand, like, there is no retirement plan, like, there's no health insurance, like, how do they do it? I can't wrap my head around it. Even when you hear about those crazy advances, like, I still don't understand how people do it, because an advance only, la- I don't know, it blows my mind. But, yeah, I would, I would like to, at least some point in my life, give myself that space and time. But at the same time, like, I, you can't, you, you can't leave a job. Like, I can't believe that what I get paid to do is what I get paid to do. It's like, it's crazy. Like I, I, jobs like that, I didn't even know they existed when I was a teenager. Like I talked to people about books and writing and what they might want to teach for us and students about what they want to learn. And that's like, it feels like a gift. So even though it's kind of sucking away my time, I mean, I might have to make some sacrifices at some point and not be able to do everything or at least accept that I just won't be very good at my job at certain moments in time. But, um, but yeah, I do, I do wish I had a little bit more space, I guess. So it would kind of be more of a dream for me, I suppose. I think that part of the reason that I was so fascinated to talk to you guys is I don't know how well I would function in a relationship with another writer. Um, and I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about, you know, not to get too personal or be too invasive, but just like, you know, does that ever get a little tense? And do you ever get like jealous of one another? How do you kind of handle both having, you know, such similar goals? Um, in terms of like the annoyance, uh, yeah, I mean, I like to go see movies. So when you're always working and I can't go see a movie, that's annoying. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like the jealousy and the annoyance and the other negative aspects, I think they're all sort of um, heavily outweighed by how much you 
believe in the person you're with and how much you admire the work they're doing. And, you know, I think I'm not going to speak for Julie, how she felt with me, but when, when I think when I was watching her write Marlena and especially, you know, seeing the earlier iterations back when, you know, 20, like what she had from like fragments, like from grad school and watching her put it together in the book that it's become, that's, you know, the whole time I I believed in how talented she is and how much the story meant to her and how I knew it was something she had to do. And so it's just basically impossible for me to feel any sort of jealousy if, you know, she gets things now that I think she deserved, you know, four or five years ago when she, like what's, what's happening now for both of us, I think is what we were hoping for each other the whole time, you know, we were, you know, getting up, you know, at six in the morning before work or, you know, coming home and, working every day it's like this is the thing that we were working towards the whole time so the idea of jealousy or you know being annoyed like and then i guess when it's happening you just shelve the feelings of annoyance or whatever else you have because you believe that uh person is going to to do that because you believe in their ability yeah i i i agree with all of that and i also think like you know, Gabe has this, like, this thing, another thing I admire about Gabe, aside from the fact that he has good, good, healthy work habits, is that he's, like, immune to something that I'm not, I'm very susceptible to, which is comparing himself to other people. Oh, my God, completely. Yeah, Gabe just, like, doesn't, he doesn't, like, look around and think, like, why do they have this, or what is that, and am I as good at, like, he just doesn't do it, and it's a really good thing for a writer not to do, because books actually can't really, I, like, when I advise other writers or people that I work with at Catapult, like, I feel so strongly that books can't even be talked about in those terms because they're not, that's not what it, it, like, that's not what it means um, to have a a book. Like, it's not about how they stack up in this larger framework of, like, which book gets more money or more attention or whatever. So he doesn't think about things like that. But I sometimes find it hard not to, even as I know that it's not useful. So I would say, like, there were a couple moments, like, when Gabe finished Stephen Florida, and I read it, I really loved that book. And I thought, like, I felt like he had done something that I haven't quite figured out yet how to do. And, in, and I had a moment where I was just like jealous. Um, and it was about what he had done. It was kind of like a more personal kind of jealousy in the sense that it was about, I envied what he had found in his own work. I felt it was like this perfect synthesis of all the things he is so good at. And he translated that onto the page. And I felt like I was still wrestling with what is like the best way for me to tell a story and, or still learning that. Um, so I was jealous in that sense. But other than that, like, it's fun in some ways to have a partner who's going to do the same thing because it's scary to have a book in the world. And for me, even, like, a good review is fraught with, like, neuroses and offense that I don't deserve it. And maybe they're lying or whatever. But when Gabe gets something, I can just be happy for him. Like, I am, I only feel happy for him and excited in a way that I kind of can't be about my own stuff, um, if that makes sense. You're totally right. It's just like you can be so susceptible to these things that you know are uh, not helpful, and then um, and then can still have that part of your brain that's like, oh, but no, but it's totally appropriate for this person. It's just me that it's yeah, not appropriate exactly, for. Exactly. Like I don't do it. Yes, totally. What does creative satisfaction look like to you at this point? Ooh, that's a good and hard question. Do you know the answer to that question, Gabe? I, yeah, I guess I don't know if I have like a succinct way to say that, but I I've been thinking that's sort of like come up like in other uh, interviews that I've had where people have asked um, like why, like why write? And um, for me, I think that there's two, there were two distinct uh, periods of of creative satisfaction. And that was during the first draft where nobody else had looked at the book and it was just mine. And that was like, you know, a year and a half of my life where I felt more alive and, uh, happy because it was something that it was a project that like relied on me to be in existence. And, um, so that was, that was the first stage was when I was figuring it out and, uh, working on the first draft and seeing what surprises happened. And then the, the second one is once I was done with it and now I feel sort of separate from the actual project itself, but I do feel a very, uh, strong sense of satisfaction that, you know, other people now are finding things in it that they identify with and that they like. And that's, you know, that's the end of the equation, you know, it's from the point of doing all the work you've done 
so I, the satisfaction that I get is both um, selfish when I'm starting and selfless when I'm done, that it's other people's now, and uh, that's hopefully going to continue going forward. I I just like to write. Like I I think maybe because my whole like internal drama in my life right now is just about whether I am going to be able to find the time to start another book or not. For me, creative satisfaction is just writing. Like I really like. I it takes me a long time and it's very difficult to get started. But once I get started, there's like nothing. I, I there's no time when I feel more creatively satisfied. So I I just like to write. I mean, it's really about writing. Like publishing is not creatively satisfying, I would say, um, in a lot of ways. It can be exhilarating and fun and and a lot of good things. And it's amazing to find readers and to have them connect your work. There's nothing on earth that feels that way. But for me, it's different than the other thing, which is like the thing I'm always trying to get back to, I guess. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.